0: warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. In today for Julia Chatterley, a busy hour ahead, including major news from the U.S. banking sector. After a weekend of tense negotiations and the breakdown of private rescue talks, U.S. regulators have seized the assets of the once mighty First Republic Bank. It is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. It's also the third big U.S. bank to collapse since March. J.P. Morgan winning the bidding war to acquire the bulk of First Republic's operations, and this includes... Billions of dollars worth of loans and deposits, making the country's biggest bank, JPM, even larger. And shares of JP Morgan currently up, let's call it, 4% pre-market on the news, slightly more than 4% there. Now, the fate of First Republic has been a major worry for investors for quite some time. Its shares have been plunging more than 25% last week alone. That's after investors questioned its ability to survive, giving that huge scale of deposits being withdrawn. Now, market reaction to this news is more muted. You can see... Nasdaq, S&P slightly lower. Little change after last week's gains. European investors, meantime, they have the day off. Dow looks just about flat. We'll keep an eye on that for you. But lots more challenges ahead for investors later this week. The Fed, of course, out with its key policy decision on Wednesday. And another quarter-point interest rate hike is expected. The ECB also holding a policy meeting as well. And Apple reports profits after the closing bell on Thursday. And that's not all because the U.S. is out with the April jobs report on Friday. A lot to discuss, to say the least. But let's begin with the latest on U.S. banks. The failure of First Republic Bank coming just days after the Fed admitted some of the blame for the collapse of the silicon valley bank but the big question now is does this finally put an end to all of the bank turmoil of the past few months vanessa yorkavich is outside of first republic bank in new york vanessa good morning so you've been on a media call this morning with bank executives from jpm what did they
1: have to say Well, Rahel, the branch just behind me of First Republic opened moments ago, but it is now owned and operated by JP Morgan, as will be the other 83 branches around the country. As you mentioned, I just listened in on a media call with uh, Jamie Dimon, who said that they weren't looking for this deal, but it made sense financially in the end. And this was after the FDIC held this auction with bids needing to be in by 4 p.m. yesterday. So this deal coming together, very quickly. I want to take you through some of the key points here. The first one incredibly important. What does it mean for customers of First Republic Bank? Well, all of your deposits in the bank are safe. Uh, J.P. Morgan assuming $92 billion in deposits. Also, 800 J.P. Morgan staffers made this happen in 24 hours. J.P. Morgan also not assuming any of First Republic's corporate debt, and also J.P. Morgan paying $10.6 billion to the FDIC on this deal. But remember, Rahel, this is coming after J.P. Morgan led other banks to infuse First Republic with about $30 billion back in March. That did not seem to hold them off very long. J- uh, Jamie Diamond on the media call said that they were hoping that that $30 billion of cash would help but ultimately, it was a stopgap for how
0: it's a great point. It sort of delayed things, it appears, but ultimately wasn't enough to really change the outcome of things here for First Republic. Vanessa, in terms of further contagion, at least based on market reaction, and it's still early days here, but the sense appears to be that maybe this is finally contained in terms of the, the banking sector. What are you hearing?
1: That is certainly what we have heard from analysts and what we just heard from uh, Jamie Dimon himself. He says that he thinks that we're nearing the end of these bank failures. He believes that the banking system is sound and he is signaling that this is not going to play an impact in terms of a recession. He also said that he didn't make this deal to stave off a, reception, a recession. But of course, for consumers, they want to know that their money is safe for hell. The FDIC, the Treasury Department, Department and J.P. Morgan all working together in some way on this deal. They are trying to signal to the American people that the banking system is, in fact, safe and that people's money is safe. Rahel.
0: Mm. And maybe driving home the point that this was a, a good financial decision, as you pointed out, saying that this made sense financially. Vanessa Jorkiewicz, great to have you. Thank you. Let's now turn to the conflict in Sudan, which is stretching into its third week. Despite the two sides agreeing to extend their ceasefire, People in Sudan tell CNN that they continue to hear explosions early Monday, including around the presidential palace in the capital city of Khartoum. Meanwhile, there are more efforts by foreign officials to try to get their citizens out of the region. Thousands, including 100 Americans, have been evacuated to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and that's where we find CNN's Larry Medoa, who joins me now. So, Larry, for every person evacuated from the region, I imagine there must be many more who are still there, who are trapped, stuck. What are you hearing
2: That is right. You can't evacuate 45 million people out of a country. So those getting evacuated are those with dual nationalities. They're Sudanese-British, Sudanese-American, Sudanese-Swedish, Sudanese-Australian. But they have to leave their families behind, and it's heartbreaking. We took a journey with the Saudi Royal Navy across the Red Sea from Jeddah to Port Sudan on an evacuation mission and back, and we heard heartbreaking stories or people who saw bodies on the street, or people who had to leave everything. One person's business was burnt, And that's why so many people are making this journey. Just This morning, about 105 Americans arrived here on the first US naval ship to make that journey, the US NS Brunswick. There were 300, just over 300 people in total on that ship. Many of them are Americans or legal permanent residents in the US, but there were also 24 Brits, people from Australia and Germany and Sweden and Norway and from all around the world. They're still using this route that the Saudis have opened because that's become, here in Jeddah, the main landing point for so many people who are making the journey from Khartoum to Port Sudan and hoping eventually to make it here. This is what that journey is like. 2 a.m., and they're finally getting out of Sudan after many anxious days. Saudi soldiers checked documents and let them through. A nightmare almost over. Thousands of people have made their over 500 mile journey from the capital Khartoum to here in Port Sudan. One person told us it took them 36 hours, but finally on a boat and eventually to a ship to Jeddah. A sad final goodbye to Sudan, victims of the stormy waters in Africa's third largest nation. Uh, it's very, very hard for me and very, very hard and very painful for me because it's like a second home, my home. CNN joined Saudi forces on an evacuation voyage from Jeddah to Port Sudan and back, bringing more people one step closer to safe shores. But the demand is high, and the military ships can only take so many people at a time. Our round trip was more than 24 hours, but brought back only 52 people across the Red Sea. Sudanese-American businessman Adil Bashir can finally sleep undisturbed for the first time in two weeks. He says his car dealership in Khartoum was trashed, burnt, and some vehicles stolen. So he took the risky drive to Port Sudan. A lot of human body, dead body on the street. You say you were detained by men in Rapid Support Forces uniform after you told them you're a U.S. citizen. Uh, Maybe you are a U.S. citizen, you are a spy. I believe they want us to be like a human shield because they were 13 ahead of me. As more people escape from Sudan, Another ceasefire was broken over the weekend, with fighting in the country entering a third week. The Saudi port city of Jeddah has become the main landing point for thousands fleeing the conflict. The Saudis are throwing everything at this rescue operation.
3: The assets, the capability, military, civilian in Saudi
2: is taking uh, the civilian from Sudan. So as, as long as it's safe, uh, we will keep doing our role. This large commercial ship brought nearly 2,000 evacuees from Port Sudan, one of the largest arrivals in Jeddah so far. Hanadi Ahmad and her Sudanese-American family were among those on the vessel received by U.S. Embassy staff. They're relieved to be safe, but heartbroken for those who couldn't get out.
4: Very bad, Wallah. It's very bad. Because all my family is here. My mom, my dad, and it's very difficult, Wallah.
2: You're scared for them? Yeah. I am so sorry.
0: I feel like
2: a few lucky dual nationals and foreigners can leave, but most Sudanese people are trapped in a deadly conflict with no end in sight. There's so much heartbreak in the people who are having to make that difficult journey to Port Sudan and then across the Red Sea to uh, here in Jeddah, but there's also beauty and innocence. I want to introduce you to my little friend, Omar. How are you doing, Omar? I'm doing good. You have a little sister, right? Yeah. How old is she?
5: She's three weeks old.
2: Are you excited to have a little sister? Yeah. (laughs) What do you want to be when you grow up?
5: I want to be an astronaut.
2: Ooh, exciting. Are you looking forward to going back to home?
6: Uh, No. I don't ever want to see Khartoum again.
2: You don't want to see Khartoum again? Why?
6: Because uh, I'm scared that uh, if I go back to Khartoum, and it's like, just like a holiday, if I go back to Khartoum, uh, something will happen again and I'm, I will not be able to get out. I will not be able to get out.
2: But you are safe now. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Thank you, Omar. We didn't even plan that. That's how he's feeling. His three-week-old sister was born just before the conflict. They have spent a week in Port Sudan trying to make this journey and back home to Scotland where Omar and his family are from.
0: Larry, just incredible. And I'm so glad you brought up little Omar. Great to see him smiling. But you just really have to wonder about the perspective of children who are going through this ordeal and what they must be thinking watching all of this uh, play out. Larry Medowa, thank you for your reporting. Great, as always. And we'll have more on the growing crisis later in the show with the vice president of humanitarian and emergency affairs at World Vision, one of the largest humanitarian agencies with a presence in Sudan. So more to come here. Stay with us. In Ukraine, meantime, under Russian bombardment again overnight, officials say that Russia launched a new round of missile and drone attacks in the east and against Kyiv. More than 30 people have been injured, including five children. Ukrainian military says that 15 of 18 cruise missiles fired by Russia were intercepted. Air defense forces destroyed Russian missiles above the capital. Meantime, in the city of Uman, many remain in mourning. That's after a missile strike killed 25 people, including six children, in an apartment building on Friday. Funerals were held for the lost on Sunday, and CNN's Nick Robertson spoke with residents of the community who were paying their respects.
3: In the shadow of death, there is love. Floral tributes and toys for victims of Russia's strike in Uman Friday. Anya, 15 years old, is paying respects to her near neighbours. <laughs> so many innocent children died, she says. I'm so sorry they're not alive anymore. More than a day after the apartments destroyed, recovery winding down. 25 dead, six of them children. Victoria points to where her father lived. Fit this one with the, with the blue wall here. She lists all the neighbors who are now dead. On the ninth floor a grandma, her daughter and two great grandchildren. On the 8th floor a father and son. On the 7th floor a mother and daughter, my best friend. And on the 6th floor a young couple, both 30. Her father survived. It was a miracle, he says. They rescued me with a ladder, and people gave me clothes. Victoria shows us documents, a letter to a now dead friend, the photo of another neighbour. She tells us she found them blowing in the wind. They are so important, she says, they are all that is left. The recovery is painstakingly slow. The wait for answers about the missing, just as painful but in all the grief, there is humanity and there is anger. In a nearby school, neighbors sought clothes, a gift for survivors who lost everything.
4: We saw all this family, the children, they were crying, and I don't know, we just felt that something we need to do that, to help them. We feel some hate for our Russian neighbors, if we can call him like that. But uh, most we are focused on helping, just only helping.
3: Police already documenting the scale of the loss. Boris Bov telling them his vehicle destroyed. It's not what's been destroyed that matters, he tells us. It's the lost lives. We sent photos of the destruction to our distant relatives in Russia so they can see what their army is doing. They didn't reply, he says. All around, life is being put back in some sort of order. The broken patched up. But ask anyone about repairing relations with Russia. What do you think about about Russia now? Animals. Imagine that for the next generation. Russia's attack, a life-shaping memory. Nick Robertson, CNN, Uman. Ukraine.
0: Meantime, people across France are taking to the streets once again, this time using May Day. It's a fresh opportunity to protest. Demonstrators coming out to slam changes to the pension system and also the Macron government that forced them through. CNN Paris correspondent Melissa Bell joins us with the details. So, Melissa, as we could see in some of those live pictures, it appeared to be some live uh, tear gas there. It appeared to be a very heavy police presence. What are you seeing on the ground? Well, right here,
6: Raheel, we're at the very front of the protest, where the black bloc traditionally uh, kick things off and try and seek confrontation with the police. and That's what we've been seeing already just now behind us uh, just a few moments ago. One of those moments uh, when uh, there was a fair amount of clashes. There's still tear gas thick in the air and pretty violent clashes between the protesters on one hand uh, and the police who are lining the streets of Paris trying to keep this uh, march as peaceful as they can. now. We had been expecting it simply because, as you mentioned, this is the context of the 1st of May. It isn't just that the pension reform protest goes on, even though this is now going to become law. The unions have vowed that they will keep on fighting through the street, and that's why you've got behind uh, those... Uh, initial black bloc protesters, all of the main trade unions and their balloons that go right back uh, to République, they're here to protest the pension reform. The broader context, of course, is that this is May the 1st. This is a day when traditionally Rahel, the French, get out and protest. Here in Europe, it is uh, a day for coming out onto the streets in favor of many causes. And so you'll see lots of different signposts today. There are people uh, out here demonstrating for the rights of women in Iran. There are people here demonstrating in favor of action against climate change. Uh, But the protesters uh, had uh, been expected to turn out in huge numbers, and authorities, more importantly, had been expecting those violent elements to be perhaps more present than they have been even these last few weeks during the pension reform protests. Between 1,000 to 2,000 protesters, they believe, uh, that are intent on causing trouble. And certainly what we've seen so far, is that it's gotten off uh, to a fairly
0: confrontational start with the police for And Melissa, just for your own awareness, we're actually showing our audience in a different video inbox uh, some of those clashes that appear to be taking place as we speak with law enforcement and the heavy police presence there in Paris. Melissa, as you said, it is set to become law now, this controversial reform. Any sense now that it does appear to be uh, becoming law, any sense of how long protesters plan to keep protesting? I mean, what's next here? I think that is uh, the big question at this stage. The authorities clearly hoping, Rahul, I'm just going to show you what's
6: happening behind because uh, that is where some of that... Those scenes are happening as the protesters try and make their way forward. The, pro- the march has been momentarily stopped because of those clashes. What the authorities are clearly hoping is that this is going to run out of steam, that now that the uh, law is set to go ahead, from September in fact, uh, people are going to see an incremental rise in the number of months that they have to work to get their pension. It's happening. Uh, They're clearly counting on the fact that the protesters will get tired of this, the unions will give up. As you can see, not only are the unions determined to continue uh, causing as many strikes as they can, holding as many of these protests as they can, but it is those black bloc elements, the far left, uh, that we have seen in far greater numbers today than we had in many of the protests before. Partly because of that made the first traditional significance of this march, but also uh, because of the anger that is out there. I think another interesting thing, uh, Rahel, that the protesters know is that the popular support uh, for this protest movement has actually gone up since January. It began January 19th by 11 percent. So despite the strikes, despite the protests, uh, there's been an 11 percent increase in the proportion of the French population that actually backs this protest movement. And I think that's very much uh, on the minds of the trade unions and the protesters as they come out here today on may 1st for help
0: melissa it's a fantastic point because that would be my next question i mean if if Officials are hoping that this loses steam. Public support doesn't really bear that out because you're actually seeing, as you pointed out, public support for this uh, for this for the protesters is actually increasing with time, and so that's not helping there. The last thing I would ask, I suppose, is that clearly from Macron's side and from the government side, they would say this is about money, this is about fiscal responsibility. Uh, what do protesters say in terms of just the fact that, uh, at least according to Macron, this is not sustainable the way the reform uh, program had been set up before? That's right, we've been hearing from France's Labour Minister Rahel, who says uh,
6: that if the current system continues as it does, uh, the uh, deficit uh, will be about 13 billion per year by 2027. And one of the points he made on French television recently was, "Okay, you want to have a pause in the reforms, will you allow for a pause? in that deficit. Now, what the trade unions, what the great proportion of the public uh, believe is that the government is uh, picking a fight in the form uh, that it's pushed this through or held. It's not so much on the substance of whether pensions need to be reformed, it is also the way the government's gone about it, pushing as it has this reform, controversial to begin with, uh, without a vote in parliament. I think that is partly what's added uh, to a lot of the anger that you're seeing, not just here on the streets today, but in the wider public, fear about the form. Uh, that this particular pension reform has taken uh, beyond the actual fact of raising the retirement age. So there is this uh, now a great deal of anger that's very much focalized on the French president himself. Remember that this builds on something that goes way back to the yellow vest protests, a lot of popular discontent at the way that Emmanuel Macron governs and the types of reforms that he's been bringing in. And I think that is once again being crystallized also in a context where things have just gotten worse, inflation, the cost of living. Uh, There is a lot of popular anger out there, a lot of it focused on the
0: French president himself, Raoul, And a lot of it very clear for, for me and all of our viewers around the world to, to witness today on the streets of Paris. Melissa Bell, thank you for joining us from Paris. Welcome back to First Move. Let's get more on our top story today. The failure of First Republic Bank and J.P. Morgan's winning bid to acquire billions of dollars worth of the bank's assets. First Republic was once a mighty regional banking institution with a predominantly wealthy client base. It now becomes the second largest banking failure in U.S. history and the third big bank to fail since March. U.S. Treasury issuing a statement today saying, quote, Treasury is encouraged that this institution was resolved with the least cost of the deposit insurance fund and in a manner that protected all depositors. But the deal surely will spark new concerns over consolidation in the U.S. banking industry and how the recent banking uncertainties might affect industry lending. Gerard Cassidy joins me now. He is the head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, great to have you on the program today. Thank you.
7: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: So top-line development to this news, top-line reaction to this development.
7: Yes, it's a development that is... um, unfortunately had to be done. Uh, We never like to see banks fail in the United States, but it was handled very efficiently with JPMorgan Chase stepping in and purchasing um, the failed bank from the FDIC. So now, as you pointed out, this all started in mid-March with the failures of Silicon Valley and signature banks. We believe now this is the end of it. There will not be any other large banks failing, in our opinion, due to what happened to these three banks.
0: So to be clear, you believe that this is really just a delayed reaction from SVB and not necessarily the start of additional banking jitters moving forward.
7: Very well said. You're absolutely right on that.
0: What was ultimately the factor that did First Republican? Because, look, I'm a business correspondent. I talk to banking analysts and very smart minds like yourself all the time, and there was a bit of surprise that ultimately first Republic would have to go into receivership because I'm told the quality of their loans were stellar. I'm told, I mean, they said that their deposits had stabilized. What was ultimately what did them in here?
7: You're absolutely right. When you talk about the asset quality of first Republic, as they've reported in the second quarter, I'm sorry, the first quarter earnings, their credit quality is pristine. Uh, unfortunately, They also reported that they lost one hundred billion dollars of deposits. These deposits were not insured. They're uninsured deposits. And because of what happened at Silicon Valley and signature banks with the uninsured deposits leaving so quickly, people or depositors at First Republic felt the same way and they took their money and left. And that's what caused the problem.
0: How many regional banks share a similar profile in that way? And, and what I mean to say is, how many banks are facing a similar vulnerability as First Republic did?
7: It's a really good question. And the answer is very few, if any. And the reason I say that is that these three banks and business models were entirely different than the rest of the regional banking industry. The number one difference is the percentage of deposits coming from consumers, or less than $250,000, which is the insurance limit. And these three banks, Silicon Valley and Signature, that number was in the low percentage of total deposits at First Republic. At the end of the calendar year 2022, that number was around 20%. Your typical regional bank in America has 40 to 60% of its deposits in the less than $250,000 category.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Here's hoping that that, uh, that uh, bears out. Gerard, we had a correspondent earlier, I'm not sure if you caught the report, Vanessa Urkiewicz, who was on a call this morning with JPM executives, and I believe it was Jamie Dimon who said, look, they ultimately did this deal not to necessarily hold off a recession, but because it made good business sense. Do you buy that, or do you think he has to say that as, of course, he benefits from a stabilized banking sector and, of course, U.S. confidence remaining stable?
7: I, I think he definitely um this transaction for them is definitely financially very rewarding it has a 20% internal rate of return based on their estimates so certainly it's something that they will uh, their shareholders will benefit from they did not go out seeking to do this deal they were called in along with other banks and yes i think by creating the stability of having a somewhat seamless transaction in this uh, receivership trend uh, situation. Uh, it does help the US economy as well where it takes less uncertain or c- eliminates some uncertainty that was out there prior to this transaction happening.
0: In terms of regulatory changes, what do you see post you know the report last week from the Federal Reserve, what do you see as the most likely regulatory change after all of this banking turmoil?
7: There will be a handful of changes, and one of the changes likely to uh, take place is going to be centered on the banks with assets probably between 100 billion and 700 billion. And it will come where they mark to market their bond portfolio and they take those unrealized gains and losses through regulatory capital. Presently, they don't do that, only the largest banks do that. So, right now, the banks take it through their what we call gap accounting, gap capital, but not through regulatory capital. So that's one of the changes that is coming. And then the second change, there will have to be some addressing of the uh, uninsured deposits. If you're a bank that has an excessive amount of them, maybe there's additional capital requirements that you may need to carry because you have a, a greater than normal percentage of uninsured deposits.
0: It's a great point. And also we've seen, certainly with SVB, how quickly bank runs can happen now in the age of technology and innovation. Jordan, I don't have much time left, but before I let you go, of course, the FOMC meeting this week, do you think we still get another rate hike or do you think the Fed has enough evidence now of a slowdown that maybe they pause? What do you think? Uh,
7: We're expecting another 25 basis points. The, you know, uh, uh, the inflation numbers are still stubborn, though they're down from the highs of last summer. They're still well above their target. So we expect another one.
0: Mm. Gerard Cassidy, wonderful to have your insights today. Thank you. That's of RBC Capital Markets. You're welcome. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Monday. It's a new week and a new month of trading on Wall Street and U.S. stocks little change in early action. Volume could be lower, though, than usual today because European markets are shut for the May Day holiday. News that U.S. regulators have seized First Republic Bank and successfully sold its assets to J.P. Morgan. Potentially a market positive. We can see the Dow futures Dow's up slightly nasdaq and s&p down slightly jp morgan ceo jamie diamond saying today that the deal will quote hopefully help stabilize the banking sector and the major u.s averages coming off a winning week and month the nasdaq up some six and a half percent in april but lots of challenges still ahead for investors first up the fed's interest rate decision on wednesday also the unresolved u.s debt ceiling crisis set to loom large in the weeks and months ahead as well Speaking of the debt healing. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about to address Israel's parliament, the Knesset. He is the first Speaker of the House to do so since Newt Gingrich back in 1998. Hadass Gold is live for us in Jerusalem. So, Hadass, what can you tell us about this trip and also how it's being viewed?
5: Yeah, well, any minute now, we are expecting the Speaker of the House to address the Israeli Parliament. Right now, the opposition leader, Yair Lapid, is speaking. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has already addressed the Israeli Parliament. And this is Kevin McCarthy's actually first trip abroad since being elected Speaker. And he has said already in some of his remarks since arriving here yesterday that that is on purpose, that he wanted to have his first trip be to Israel to highlight uh, that the United States has no better ally, he says, than Israel. And it's been a different sort of tone than the tone. We've been hearing recently from the U.S. administration, from the White House, from President Joe Biden. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, Joe Biden scoffed at the idea that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would be coming for a visit to the White House This uh, uh, over the sort of controversy over the judicial overhaul plan that the Israeli government Benjamin Netanyahu has been trying to push through. That's been since paused, but President Biden was trying to get uh, Netanyahu, he said, to hopefully walk away from it. Instead, Kevin McCarthy praising Netanyahu directly, saying that the United States admires him for his leadership and his courage. And even saying, going so far as to say in an interview with an Israeli paper yesterday, that if President Biden does not invite Benjamin Netanyahu to Washington soon, that he will instead invite Netanyahu to speak to the U.S. Congress, even without a White House invitation. That would be a pretty significant event if it were to happen. McCarthy even joking that he's being treated the same way by President Biden, saying that he also has not received an invitation to meet with President Biden since becoming elected. But what we're, hearing to, what we're expecting to hear from McCarthy is likely a lot of warm words. It's about the U.S.-Israel alliance that it's now, Israel is now celebrating its 75th year as a country, saying that he expects uh, that alliance to continue for the next 75 years and beyond. What we will are less likely to hear about is the many controversies that are swirling around this Israeli government right now. Everything from the extremist right-wing ministers who are in positions of power, people who were once considered the far fringe of Israeli politics, to this massive judicial overhaul plan that has been called undemocratic by some of Israel's critics, like. This speech will be a lot of positive language about the alliance and how it will endure in the coming years.
0: Hadass Gold, Life force there in Jerusalem. Thank you, Hadass. We want to now return to Sudan, where the conflict between rival military forces continues. It has been three weeks of devastation, and there does not appear to be any end in sight now, despite the extension of no, another so called ceasefire, people in Sudan tell CNN that they heard explosions in and around the presidential palace in the capital city of Khartoum early on Monday. And on the ground, well, the situation is quickly worsening. Over the weekend, the United Nations warning the humanitarian crisis is reaching a breaking point. And the Sudan Doctors' Union warning that the number of dead bodies scattered across the streets is creating an environmental catastrophe. Joining me now is Mark Smith. He is the Vice President of Humanitarian and Emergency Affairs of World Vision. That's one of the largest humanitarian agencies with a presence in Sudan. Mark, thanks for being with us today.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So as I understand it, you still have teams in Sudan, but they are not able to do the work they so desperately want to do. Walk me through the status of your teams right now.
4: So right now we have about 290 national staff who frankly are hibernating right now. Um, Our international staff, we were able to evacuate last week via port Sudan and Jeddah, uh, and one went into South Sudan. But our national staff are, uh, at this point, suspended operations. Tomorrow, we're having a discussion with respect to how do we restart, where do we safely restart, and assessing uh, where we can actually provide assistance.
0: And, and walk me through those conversations. I mean, what are your staff, your national staff there telling you in terms of um, the scene?
4: Well, basically, um, it's, it's difficult to kind of stay in touch with all of them, given cell phone uh, coverage has, has been disrupted. Uh, Electricity has been disrupted. People have been on the move. So at this point right now, we're hearing that the situation is very desperate. Prices have increased dramatically. We have not been able to actually pay staff since the beginning of April because we can't get cash into the country. So they're in a bit of a desperate situation themselves, uh, but they are kind of, uh, you know, starting to think about what can we do, where can we do it?
0: Yeah. And what concerns you most? I mean, I I have to wonder about the children. We had a correspondent earlier um, in the port of Sudan who actually now he's in Jeddah, but he talked to a young, a young child, Omar, who was remarkably smiling. But he said to him, he said to our correspondent, I'm scared if I go back, I won't be able to get out. I mean, what, what concerns you most right now?
4: So I would say that from a safety perspective, we're probably most concerned about women and children. Um, When you have people on the move, uh, you know, gender based violence, uh, attacks on women, uh, children, disabled, these are the people that are most vulnerable to violence, exploitation, abuse. And so that would probably be our number one concern. Of course, uh, access to clean water, lack of access to food. These are issues that are very concerning as well. Mm. Um, And so uh, while we're assessing and beginning to assess what we can do inside the country, we are seeing tens of thousands of people cross borders into Chad, Ethiopia, uh, South Sudan. And so in those areas, we've already started programming.
0: And as I understand it, World Vision has been active in Sudan for decades, if if memory serves me correctly. Sudan, of course, not... Foreign to conflict. I, for one, was born in Sudan. I was born in Khartoum. It's a region of the world I know very well. Uh, What would you like to see done? What more needs to be done, perhaps from the international community, to um, try to take care of some of these people there?
4: Well, I think obviously we'd like to see an end to the fighting. And this is where I think help from outside of Sudan is probably really important. The African Union, I think, is in a position to be able to kind of step up and help with negotiations to bring an end to the violence, that is probably the biggest step that we can see in terms of assisting people is the violence has to end. We have to find a solution. Once that happens, then we can begin to access populations with assistance.
0: But as far as I know, I mean, both generals, both sides say they have no intentions to stop. So, so what do you see happening from here?
4: Uh, I mean, that's the situation now. Um, we're just hoping that at some point uh, negotiators can be working with these generals uh, and bring them to the table to figure out uh, a way forward uh, that's peaceful.
0: Yeah, well, Mark Smith, we are certainly uh, thinking about your staff and hoping that they are able to, to do the work thank that they you. want to do safely um, to help the people who clearly need it. Mark Smith, thank you, thank Vice you. President of Humanitarian and Emergency Affairs at World Vision Welcome back. An update now on our top stories, one of our top stories around the world as protests continue across France on May Day. As you can see here, these are live pictures. Police are out in full force in Paris. The protests come after President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform plan went through, a very controversial plan. And as we can see here, people are clearly so angry about it. We have seen tear gas, fires, broken windows. We've heard very loud booms there. CNN will, of course, stay across these protests and bring you updates as we get them. But those are live pictures in Paris as people continue to protest. And actually, I want to take you to Melissa Bell uh, in Paris, who is with us or is not with us, guys. Okay, Melissa, I want to bring you back into the conversation now. Walk us through again uh, what more you're seeing on the ground.
6: Uh, Rahel, where are Let me just show you what's happening where we are. This is um, the front of the protest where the black bloc have been facing off with the riot police for the best part of the last uh, half hour or so. And for now, the march isn't able to make progress because of these uh, regular uh, scuffles that have been happening. and It's really been getting quite violent. As you can see, uh, the riot police are lining uh, the side streets of where the march should go. And it is against them that the Black Bloc have been facing off for the last half hour, hour, fairly violently, uh, really trying to express some of that very uh, uh, violent anger that they're feeling. Now, this is the front of the march, as I was saying a moment ago. It's important to remember that going further back, you've got all the trade unions. uh, There are, uh, we expect, many tens of thousands of people who will be on the streets of France today many of them protesting peacefully. These are traditional May Day protests. Of course, authorities expected there would be far more people in the street because of the pension reform protests, because of the anger that's out there. Uh, but what we've been seeing certainly as this march has kicked off is a lot more of those black bloc that you tend to see at the front of the marches seeking the direct confrontation with the police uh, than we had in many of the the march- many of the protests these last few weeks. And I think, That speaks to a couple of things. First of all, of course, that this pension reform is going ahead. The law has now been passed. The changes will be effective from September and people will start seeing uh, the number of months that they have to work raising in practice. And that, of course, is causing a great deal of anger. And this May the 1st is being used symbolically uh, to really make uh, plain the anger about that. It is also uh, important to remember, I think, that that pension reform anger has been taking place in the context of inflation, Uh, high cost of living, all of those grievances that were the heart of the yellow vest protests a couple of years ago have really gotten worse. And a lot of that anger that you're seeing expressed on the streets today against Emmanuel Macron is something that's been seething, simmering for many years now and has really gotten gotten a lot more violent, a lot more overt, a lot more obvious over the course of the last few weeks as a result of this particular pension reform protest, Rahel. That's a great
0: point, Melissa, that bears repeating. It's the Controversial nature of the reform, but it is also the way in which it was pushed through that has clearly uh, really inflamed tensions there in Paris. Melissa Bell, wonderful to have you. Stay safe. Thank you for your reporting. Welcome back into Cuba now, where severe fuel shortages have forced the government to cancel the traditional May Day parade today. Now, most years, it actually draws hundreds of thousands of people to Revolution Square in Havana. Patrick Ottman joins me now. So, Patrick, what do we know about what's behind all of the fuel shortages?
8: Well, you know, certainly shortages are nothing new uh, to people who live in Cuba. Long lines are just a part of life here. But the fuel shortages we've seen over the last few weeks are the worst in years, if not decades. And they are affecting nearly everyone who lives on this island. It's a country running on empty. Across Cuba right now, more cars seemingly wait online to fill up than drive on the road. Even at stations when there is no gas, people line up for when or if it finally arrives. For drivers like Elien, the sudden island-wide shortage of fuel means they spend their days trying to fill up rather than working. It ain't easy. They sell too little, he says. Only 40 liters. That only gives me enough for one day. They won't give me more than that. Some people immediately siphon the gas they managed to pump, either to resell or to hoard it as they get back in line all over again. Increasingly, Cubans complain that police are letting too many of what they call indisciplinas, undisciplined behavior, take place. What many people do is they save several spots per car, which multiplies many times over how many people are actually in this line. Waiting for gas. Once the gas actually arrives though, people come rushing back, they cut the line, and that's when all hell breaks loose. As the lines get longer, tempers get shorter. Certain privileged groups like foreign diplomats have their own gas stations assigned to them, but it makes little difference when there's no gas to pump. The Cuban government has said little about the crisis. The worst in years but acknowledges that there has been a disruption of shipments from suppliers like Venezuela, Cuba's socialist ally, who they receive oil from in exchange for medical workers. The first domino piece that falls out of this is Venezuela, that it's selling its better quality crude to those customers that can pay cash. So the good quality crudes that Cuba used to get uh, are no longer there because Cuba doesn't pay cash for crude oil. The ripple effects of the gas crunch impact nearly everyone on this island. University classes have been cancelled. Farmers don't have fuel for tractors. There's not enough diesel for garbage trucks to empty dumpsters that overflow with trash. And the Cuban government was forced to cancel the massive parade held every Mayday in Cuba's Revolution Square. Usually the island's top leadership looks on as hundreds of thousands of workers file by. This May Day, officials are encouraging Cubans to march in their own neighborhoods. There simply isn't enough fuel for anything on a large scale. We will still commemorate May Day, he says, but rationally and with maximum austerity. Cuban officials have said the gas shortages will last at least through the end of May. And as frustrating and punishing as this crisis is for Cubans, All people can do is hope and endure their long wait. And as we, uh, we reported, you know, these May Day celebrations where we were first told would be a much on a much smaller scale, and then they were moved. It was an announcement that came yesterday uh, from today, Monday, May Day, which is when it's always been held here, to Friday, something that's never been done before because of weather conditions, uh, which is so much strange because while it rained in Nevada yesterday, it's a beautiful day today. It just speaks to how disrupting uh, these uh, shortages of gas are, how they are impacting nearly every uh, event every activity here and the, the, the fear that many experts have is it's not uh, a short-term solution perhaps uh, that's going to fix this it's a question of how uh, well-kept the refineries have been over the years they are falling apart uh, the cash crunch that cuba is suffering from so this may not as officials have said uh, be fixed in the next uh, few weeks it may in fact become the new the new normal here
0: yeah. One official I was reading, I told the New York Times, we still don't have a clear idea how we're going to get out of this. Uh, Matthew Otman, thank you. Patrick Ottman, thank you. We appreciate that. And finally, on First Move, if you are an animal lover like me and you like dressing up, well, we may have found the job for you. Blackpool Zoo in the north of England is advertising for a, quote, seagull deterrent to try to keep the birds away from food, visitors and other animals. How, you ask? like this, by dressing up as a giant bird. The zoo is looking for up to five people for this job, so, you know, don't get in a flap if you're worried about making the short list. Well, there is a a job for everyone. Just as they say, there is a lid for every pot. Uh, Before I go, one quick programming note. CNN will air special live coverage of the coronation of King Charles III on Saturday, May 6th. It all starts at 5 a.m. in New York, 10 a.m. in London, right here on CNN. In the meantime, that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the world. That's coming up next.